Hello, I'm Zachary Newell. Do you ever feel like humanity deserves a better world than the one we've built for ourselves? Personally, I just can't shake the feeling. That's why I'm here, to talk about what we've been doing and how we can do it better. Welcome to Better Futures. Okie doke. Hi. So are we are we starting? Yeah. We're 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 recording. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. What's up, Steve? <laughs> you know, the ceiling. <laughs> How's that? Okay. We're in for straight talk. Okay. I like it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for having me in your home. It's nice to be here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what I've been interested in our conversations has been the social contract, as you've described it. Okay. Could you offer just a brief refresher for myself and anyone else who might be, you know, not quite up to date on that term? Okay. Well, social contract to me, and I'm, I've actually never read Rousseau's uh, social contract and a lot of the 1600s uh, philosophers that started it, but... Essentially, my understanding of social contract is a government uh, obtains its legitimacy based on the consent of the people. And when the people give that consent, there are expectations of the government. Mm -hmm. And there's been long arguments about what is consent and what is expectation. But essentially, the overall concept is people give consent to the government, and the government, in return, has a contract with them to provide some sort of expectation. Originally that expectation had, I think, mostly to do with keeping social order, even though in the last two, three hundred years it's expanded significantly, I think, beyond that for what people expect uh, from their government. So I guess that's how I would define the social contract. There's two parts of this. There's the consent on the part of the governed, and there is the expectation on the part of the government. That's my understanding. Okay, we'll frame it within that understanding. Okay. All right, so for the modern day, when social order is not necessarily optimal, it's not perfectly orderly, but at the same time, we probably have less reason to fear brigands and that sort of thing. What would you say that the social contract is providing in terms of the expectations, and what might it be deficient in providing? I guess I will comment mostly about what I see the social contract in the United States, um, because the whole idea of social order in many other countries is not as stable, and things like brigands actually do happen throughout the world, even though there is a social contract uh, or an implied social contract. In the United States, I think, on the one side, as far as consent, there's a lot of discussion about what is consent, and a lot of it revolves around voting, and who can vote, and the representative democracy, and our different groups adequately represented and how do we actually be fair about allowing different groups to vote or to give their consent. On the expectation side, there's two parts of the expectation that I think that the government mainly supplies. Number one, it supplies a representative democracy and secondly, it provides a economic system which I will characterize as capitalism with a relatively moderate dose of socialism. So that's how I would characterize our current social contract in the United States. There's a lot of topics surrounding those. As I indicated, how do we make sure that people actually adequately give their consent to whoever is governing them? And on the other side, there's what sort of services does the government provide and what sort of services are reasonable to expect? I think there's certainly a lot of discussion nowadays about voting and how do you actually give people a voice and make sure that 
people have a voice in the vein of trying to keep it somewhat brief so we don't drag for hours. There are certainly groups that have a difficult time getting a voice. Uh, certainly children don't have an, a voice. And so there are people that actually make sure that children do have a voice. I think it's relatively difficult for immigrants to have a voice. And in order for them to have a voice, just by the nature that they just arrived here from a different cultural situation, from a different country, from different expectations, from their government to changing to this government, I think there's elements that are necessary in our society to help those people properly register their consent. And a lot of the laws and a lot of the functions of how voting or determining what people's consent are actually a currently a hot topic in the United States about how to, how to do that. On the government side of expectations, there's an element of how do you service such a wide number of people in our country that have expectations of what the government should provide. Certainly, I think most everyone will agree we need to provide security, even though there's wide disagreement about the level of what should we be spending on the military. How do we actually repulse aggressors? So from an external standpoint, that's an issue and has historically been an issue. And we also have internally, how do we keep order within our society as far as police and maintaining order? So I think a lot of it, as far as expectation for what the government should provide, there's such a wide range of people, all the way from immigrants to children, to the very rich, to the very poor, to people who are actually able to look after their own welfare, to people that aren't able to look after the welfare. How do you actually come together and negotiate all of those very individual elements to address each group's expectations? When they give consent, what does that mean? What legitimate things do they expect from the government? And so I think there's a number of things. And as you and I have talked before, I think at the very least, the government has a requirement to provide what I will call everybody with warm, dry, and well-fed. I'm not sure that there you could get a whole lot of people that would think that starving people in the streets are good. In general, I think there's broad consensus that people should not starve in the street. And for the most part, that I think is happening. There certainly are nutritional elements that everyone doesn't have good nutrition. And, and certainly there is there are some people that are never quite sure where their meal's coming from. However, I think it'd be difficult to find and show that people are actually starving. So that is somewhat of a low bar. So... But then you kind of, you know, you want to move the bar up. But at the very least, the rest of the world, that's not actually the case. There are people that are starving and don't have clean water and don't have access to any sort of, many times, food or water. So although you and I might have the expectation that that's a pretty low bar, compared to the rest of the world, we are, I guess I'm going to say we're somewhat to the top. Warm and dry, I guess I would like to add one other thing, the expectation of medical care. In my opinion, the country has not decided about providing medical care. And it's a very fractured system, and there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions. My particular opinion is I would actually like to see the government provide a medical care. I would like to see that as part of the social contract. If you give consent to be governed, I would like to see the expectation for a government to provide medical care. I don't think it's an unreasonable goal. I think that the country is wealthy enough to actually provide medical care. There are certainly countries that are not anywhere near as wealthy as us that actually do that, and I don't find that to be a real problem.
the transition from getting where we are now to actually providing that can be somewhat bumpy because there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. And the eventual losers are large insurance industry that currently provides that. I'm not in favor of radical change. So all of a sudden eliminating the private insurance, I'm not sure I like that. I would like to see an incremental mechanism where Medicare is expanded beyond age of 65 as you move further and further down the age groups, maybe in five years, move it to 65 years after that move it to 55 that way you allow industries that depend on our current medical providing mechanism to actually transition to a new and different way of actually providing that so I think that's an expectation that I think is reasonable for our government to move to there's the whole idea of warm and dry is it the government's responsibility to provide housing for everyone that we start moving into, so what sort of housing? The nice thing about medical care is it generally is determined by a doctor or medical staff what sort of medical care is necessary and people are able to move through and hopefully the government can transition to providing that. As far as housing, well, what sort of housing do we actually want to give people? There's a wide variety of what kind of housing people want. Should everyone have access to a one-bedroom apartment at the very least? So the government provides a one-bedroom apartment, medical care, and some sort of access to food. I'm not sure how this affects incentive to work. The other thing is there's a large portion of society that views that as unfair. There's a large portion of our society that's working 40 hours or more to provide a one-bedroom apartment, medical care, food, and housing for their family. If that is looked on as like, well, I get that for free, does this affect a large portion of the society and the incentive to work? And there's a lot of discussion around this. So what happens if you just provide that for people. Do people stop working? Unknown. And I I think that particular question is up to debate still. I look at my own family and I kind of say, I have somebody who's working 40 hours a week and is trying to have their own apartment, is trying to pay for their food, their medical care, etc. If all of a sudden this is free, what sort of dislocations happen in society? So I don't know. I'm not sure that everybody is entitled to a nice one-bedroom apartment, you know, on the 23rd floor of uh, Minneapolis public housing and free food and free medical care and not in any way required to work. However, there are some people that that's required. You know, as you look, some people actually, no matter what you give them, are not able to provide that. So what should we provide for these people? And there are many different gradations in society and how people perceive what is fair. I think one of the things is that people expect out of government is that it's fair. I, I think you arrive at that by negotiation. Because if people don't perceive things as fair, that becomes a real problem in your society. So I think uh, fairness is a big part of it. And now we get back to the idea of consent in the social contract. It's like people don't give their consent to systems that are not fair. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, gets back to having a voice. If you don't feel things are fair, then you don't feel you've given consent. And if you don't have a voice, then you haven't given consent. Mm -hmm. So having a voice, perceiving that things are fair, and giving consent are all 
related to the expectation that you have from your government. Each of those things have their own very large discussion surrounding them. The subject's very large, so I don't know if you want to move into any particular element of that or... Honestly, I think that that's probably enough for just a first start. Okay. However, I do really appreciate the dynamic being discussed here between fairness, expectations, and consent, or whatever order you want to put them in. Yeah. There is, however, one idea that does occur to me. Okay. So, let's just assume that the new expectation in terms of a social contract, like what I need to be awarded in order for my consent to be... uh, Legitimate. Legit. Yes, exactly. In order for my consent to be legitimate, it seems as though you would advocate that healthcare and some kind of provision of guaranteed shelter would be a bit like the minimum or the low bar that a rich country can meet. Yes. With the provision that a large portion of the of the country needs to perceive that as fair. Okay. Again, right off the top of my head. What if these benefits of shelter and healthcare were provided in exchange for four years of service, not in the military, because honestly, our country, having just abandoned Afghanistan and spent a trillion plus there, <laughs> We probably could have been paying for universal health care the entire time with that money. Yes. So instead of four years of military service, we could have four years of a civilian conservation corps, similar to what they had during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And then once you have served your four years, you have health care and shelter guaranteed for life. Right. At least the bare minimum of shelter. Right. I'd have to think about this a little bit, but I remember this was a large discussion in the late 90s with Bill Clinton and welfare. Mm -hmm. There was a perception that too many people were on welfare and not doing anything. So there was a compromise uh, with some sort of provision that in order to receive your welfare, whatever that might be, Mm -hmm. you had to work somehow, or you had to provide some sort of evidence either that you were working or trying to get work. That was somewhat controversial, and of course a lot of these programs are difficult to administer and difficult to actually make sure that people aren't taking advantage of them. So I don't know that I oppose that. The actual implementation of that, I think, did move forward and has been, at least in some sort of limited sphere, been part of the welfare element or the part of the unemployment element or part of the social service money that people get. Unemployment's a good example. You're When you're unemployed, you get unemployment, but eventually you kind of have to show that you're looking for work. And if that moves then into, I can't find work should the government provide work for you in in some way like you had said a conservation corps or whatever they deem relevant maybe that's part of it there's good ideas and sometimes the implementation of the ideas is very difficult to administer and is open heavily to fraud and at the very least malingering and each of these things you have to implement them in such a way that the majority of people of, I'm going to say the majority of reasonable people perceive them to be fair. So if you have somebody that's out of work, you give them a certain amount of time to find work or look, and then if they don't find, they have to prove that they're looking, and if they still can't find work, you give them work. Well, what sort of work is this? Is this, you know, digging a ditch and then filling it in? Is this picking up trash along the freeway? Uh, who administers this program? Then there are social consequences and sh- social status that's part of this. It's like, well, this is kind of what they used to have convicts do in the prison farms. They had them out, I don't know, 
digging ditches and picking up trash and do you want to have a social situation that people perceive oh these people that are unemployed are well they're like convicts so you end up with a social status sort of element that enters into this also when you make work for people so the implementation even though I, th- I think it's a good idea the implementation of it I think can have many pitfalls so you're once again kind of left with the what about the incentive to work and then you even actually come back to the thing of okay so you have a large portion of your society that actually is not working and is pretty much wandering around without enough to do is this a bad thing maybe I mean, it used to be that, you know, you had pretty much everybody had to farm, otherwise your village was going to starve. Mm-hmm. Well, now a farmer can feed like anywhere from 300 or more people. So the whole kind of struggle for food and for survival maybe isn't relevant. And as our society gets more and more efficient and gets better and better at producing food or housing or basic needs for people, does everybody need to work? Or maybe everybody only needs to work 30 hours. I mean, we, we in America, we have this idea like everyone should be working all the time and this is what you really should have. But you need to have a cultural agreement on what is acceptable for people to work. We've now come to the acceptable agreement that yes, everyone should work 40 hours if they're able, but not 60 hours like they used to in 1900 in a mining town in West Virginia. Or like or, many gig workers today. Or many gig workers so. today, there's you know there's a lot of people that are holding down multiple uh, part-time jobs, mm-hmm. or you know there's there's a number of people that feel that they cannot make it just working 40 hours. So you end up with the maybe our society is efficient enough so that you can actually have a reasonable portion of the society that is not working 40 hours or more a week. So how do you change that expectation in your society without some sort of level of collapse? It's taken us 100 years to get from you should be working all the time in the mines to, well, 40 hours is acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, and you should always have Saturday and Sunday off or, or at least to have a reasonable amount of time off. You know, in Europe they have large chunks of vacation um, that are available to people. So they have moved down the path of people don't need to be working as much or as hard as the world gets better and better at providing basic needs for people. So how do you adjust your society to actually move towards whatever that goal might be? You know, and and each of these things are incremental. I'm not a big fan of moving forward in in big lurches. And I I think they have in countries that you, you have moved expectations for work. So maybe that's it. Maybe maybe you do actually provide everybody with warm, dry, well-fed, and you have a decent portion of your society that's actually not at work. Mm. I don't know, but that discussion is yet to be held. I think that it is a discussion that will be coming up. Yeah. Because thinking about how much productivity has increased and how much wages have stagnated since, say, 1980, And also thinking about how, to my understanding, office workers estimate that only about two hours a day are they actually productive or consider themselves productive. So that's 25% of the typical office worker's working day. That's the only time that they're productive. 75% they're doing nothing. So perhaps the work week should be reduced to 10 hours. Yeah, but then of course people do worry about the fact that if they're only working one quarter of the time, well if you're working two hours a day or 
going from eight hours to two hours. Well, now if you're only working two hours, are you only getting 15 minutes worth of legitimate work? Uh. Or half an hour's worth of, do my math here right, <laughs> half an hour worth of legitimate work. And of course, I've had discussions with a number of my friends over the years on this. It's like, if somebody hires you for eight hours, I have friends that say, well, I do as much in two hours as everyone else does in eight hours. So I get to do my two hours worth of work and then just sit and read or be on my phone for six hours. And I do as much work as everybody else. So is, is that fair and legitimate? Or is your boss essentially hiring you to work for eight hours and you're actually generating eight hours even though the person next to you is really in eight hours only generating what you would generate in two hours? Mm. So now you get back to the idea of, so what is fair? I mean, what is legitimate and there are different people that are on all different sides of this and in that particular example my general feeling is like well I hired you for eight hours of work and if you're able to work eight hours and produce eight hours worth of work you should be doing that even though the person next to you is actually only producing one quarter of what you would produce however there are a lot of people that are on the other side of that argument so unknown all right. So, I'll just call it an open book. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. So, I mean, being a small business owner, when you hire somebody for eight hours worth of work, you expect them to actually work eight hours. However, a worker kind of looks at this from a totally different perspective. Um, so how do you come together once again for what is fair within a larger context? This is probably an ongoing discussion with so much difficulty filling open positions or perhaps, put another way, how much bargaining power the labor has right now. Right. And this, this changes also. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, well, if labor's tight, then the lab, labor has better negotiating. Mm-hmm. And so maybe this is really fluid. If labor's not tight, then they have less negotiating. Mm-hmm. So as you move on in time, this may actually not be a static answer. It may actually be totally based on supply and demand. But then there's a lot of people that's like, well, I don't necessarily want this to be based on a capitalistic principle like supply and demand. I want an assured set amount. I don't want to have to renegotiate these sort of things every couple of years, even though in practicality, that's probably what's happening. So I don't know. And I I think you're right. These things are all continual ongoing discussions. In the case of somebody that you hired, an employer has to look and say, okay, I've hired them both for eight hours time. One actually only produces two hours worth of work. The other produces eight hours worth of work. Well, now that eight hours worth of work, that person says, you know, I'm only going to, I'm only going to produce three hours. Well, the boss kind of looks at that and says, well, crap, you know, I got this guy that's here eight hours, but on his phone for five hours and working for three, or I've got this person that's working for eight, but actually produces two hours. So at that point, the employer has to say, what do I want? Do I fire the guy who's only working three hours and then five hours on his phone just out of principle? Just because I think he should be working eight hours. Well, I'm really hurting myself because I'm getting three hours out of him and I'm only getting two hours out of the other person. I guess in that particular case, my feeling is it's kind of up to the employer. It's like, well, what do you you think? Could he fire the the three-hour guy and hire another eight-hour guy and actually get eight hours worth of work? You know, you're always negotiating to get the best deal. So anyway, and a lot of these sort of discussions, I think, revolve around people that have 
power, you know, an employer that has power and an employee that has power and that has options. In this current market where you have tight labor supply, the labor has a, the upper hand and it's like, no, I want to I wanna work offsite and I, I want this sort of salary. However, there's a lot of people in our society that don't perceive they have the ability to negotiate and pretty much have to take what they get. And there are those that go to work for eight hours and actually are only able to produce half hours worth of reasonable work because they're just not capable of this. So there is, in a capitalistic society, you are kind of assuming that everybody can negotiate. But in reality, everyone is not able to negotiate. And you have a a lot of people that can't negotiate or don't perceive that they have the ability to negotiate. Mm -hmm. This gets back to our idea of fair, Mm -hmm. you have a voice, and that the consent and the expectation of the system that you are in. Mm -hmm. So capitalism is okay. The problem is is that there tends to be people that don't do as well. One of the reasons, in my opinion, why there are rich people is because they got up this morning at two o'clock and they were reading all the business news and now they're on the, the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange and they're working their ass off and they just know a lot about that. For the same reason my wife is a great piano player because she's sitting and practices for five hours a day. Okay, so you just have different levels of ability and people's different interests. Some people are really interested in making money and some people are interested in underwater basket weaving or <laughs> whatever they might be interested in, you know, or may not even be able to do anything other than you know underwater basket weaving or have no facility whatsoever with money or even facility of understanding in case of mental illness even understanding reality so how do you deal with these people that don't have a voice but yet there's implied consent and there's a wide group of people that do not do well in a capitalistic society so what do you do with those people that their only ability is underwater basket weaving is it fair to actually relegate them to poverty because they don't have this ability whereas someone who trades on the New York Stock Exchange and gets up at two in the morning works their ass off for the next 16 hours and just makes a shitload of money is it fair that somebody who has this ability or is doing really well and the other is relegated to poverty and just I'm somewhat of an evolutionist it's like is it fair that a deer that runs slow is wiped off the face of the earth but a deer that can run fast is not wiped off the face of the earth okay this is you know this is adaptive to your environment and I, I am somewhat a believer in that we are part of our the larger environment and we are s- subject to the laws of evolution also, just like, you know, as a society and, and even on an individual basis. On the other hand, I'm not such a hardline evolutionist that's like, I'm sorry, if you can only do underwater basket weaving, you will be relegated to poverty. You know, that, that seems a little bit harsh. So once again, we move into the, yeah, so what's fair? You know, and once again, that you end up into, well, we have to have a discussion about what's fair. Well, some people are better at discussions than other people. And so how do we set up a governmental situation that gives the people the voice to determine what's fair? So, anyway. All right. Well, that's my next question. Okay. (laughs) For another time, though. Okay. Anyway. Thank you, Steve. Yep.